All right, welcome back to Knowledgeable Novice. It's me, Addison. I'm here with you today. I'm very excited to dive into a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And honestly, I think this is usually the topic that mostly tends to draw people in to trauma-informed work is hearing about the biology of trauma, the brain science of how trauma and stress affects the brain. Um, and so I just wanna preface by saying that while all of this is incredibly important and super impactful and makes a really big difference for us to know this in our minds as we look to change our mindsets, unlearn things as Dr. Coloma shared in the last episode and, and refine our classroom practices, we can't stop here. This cannot be the only thing that we learn and take away from our course this summer because it's one element. It's not the element that is most crucial, I would argue. Um, there's lots and lots to understand and learn and unpack. And so um, just want to put that out there as a qualifier before we get started. So Casey is not with me on the podcast today. He's got a lot of work going on and we are in the midst of moving, which has been very uh, fun. Um, and so hope you'll mind me being just the knowledgeable one, no novice. Perhaps you can envision yourself sitting, listening to this. And uh, yeah, I'm, I really have no cool play on words. So we'll just dive right in. All right, let's talk about the trauma-affected brain. So we've discussed in class, you've read in your book a little bit about the impact of trauma and what trauma does to the developing brain and the brain in general. On the whole, when a brain is affected by trauma, experiences trauma, responds to trauma, the number one concern for that brain becomes safety. And so it's constantly scanning for threat or perceived threat. Um, there's hypervigilance that might trigger the stress response system and all sorts of scientific things that go hand in hand at the same time. So we've talked about what trauma is, how it's generally defined. But again, as I said, let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into what actually is happening in the brain in response to trauma or a traumatic event. event. So in a very basic way, we talked about Dan Siegel's upstairs, downstairs brain hand model. So you'll remember that the downstairs brain, that bottom part of your hand is the reptilian brain that controls our breathing and our bodily functions like heart rate, digestion, fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn. The thumb is your amygdala, which is constantly scanning for perceived threat. And perception is really important to keep in mind because what I perceive as a threat may be very different from what you perceive as a threat. And everyone perceives things differently. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then you have your upstairs brain, the thinking, reasoning, logic, control over emotions, empathy, self-awareness, basically everything that happens in the prefrontal cortex. So our survival as humans, as innate animals, depends on our ability and our brain's ability to make predictions. So a primary goal of the brain is to predict where and how threats may occur and how we can avoid those threats and encounter rewards. At the most primal level of our brainstem, we are worried about threat versus reward. And because the brain seeks to make accurate predictions of whether something is a threat or a reward, it really doesn't like uncertainty. It really doesn't like when we might not be in control or we perceive not being in control. The brain really dislikes ambiguity, okay? 
So when the brain is seeking certainty, it values being in control. It wants to be in charge. When we are in control of our thoughts and feelings and actions, we are cruising. We're good to go. But stress and trauma occur in life as they do. And when that happens, the brain then perceives the threat or this potentially threatening circumstance as a lack of control. And that's where the trauma and the stress response starts. So thinking about the stress response and the trauma response, here are the neurologic, if I could speak, the neurobiological steps that happen in the brain. So the amygdala, as we just discussed, is the watchdog of the brain and it's constantly scanning. So when the amygdala sees, hears, smells, or feels something that might be a threat at the most basic level, it sends a signal. So the job of the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system, is to assess stimuli all the time. It's assessing stimuli, especially threats, and it's initiating an appropriate response. Now, we usually think about stimuli as things that are coming from the external environment, things around us, but there's also stimuli that the amygdala is scanning for within us. There's internal stimuli too, which could be a memory, could be a change in the body chemistry. Maybe it might be increased heart rate. That could be a perceived threat, could be a change in temperature. There's internal things that are also going on that can generate a response. There's a huge variety of emotional responses, for example, like we might see something and that could cause us to wince or flinch or run, or we'll get into all those responses in a bit. But many of these emotional responses are initiated instantaneously and the reaction time and the, st- and the process of this happening in our body is so quick. It's perhaps the science says maybe a quarter of a second or more before the signal reaches all the way from the brainstem to the amygdala all the way up to the prefrontal cortex. So when signals are sent from the amygdala, it's sent to the hippocampus where memories are encoded and associated with the emotion that we're feeling. And memories with strong emotional content are usually more likely to be stored in long-term memory. So a I have heard this analogy once about the hippocampus being like the brain's filing cabinet and the most emotionally charged memories, the most salient memories that are both good and bad, positive and negative are often stored at the very front of the file cabinet and they're easily accessible. Your brain goes to them frequently. And then some of the less charged emotional memories are towards the back and sometimes harder to access. Okay, so let's go back to this perception of threat because I got off on a little tangent about the amygdala. So the amygdala is the watchdog. It scans. It thinks, oh, there's a threat. The brain perceives the threat. The amygdala perceives the threat and immediately sends a signal to the sympathetic nervous system. That sympathetic nervous system is activated and it initiates immediately your fight, flight, freeze, faint, fawn response. At the same time that your sympathetic nervous system is activated, cortisol, which is a stress hormone that increases our blood sugar, suppresses our immune system, um, is released. So when it does that, cortisol floods the body. Our immune system is suppressed so that all our energy can be redirected. So it's kind of like becoming this, like having tunnel vision and, and, and our brain can only focus on the threat at that time. And that's important to remember. We'll talk about why. At the same time that the stress hormone is released, as cortisol is is moving around our body, other hormones are also released. So adrenaline, which is epinephrine, is released in our body at the same time as cortisol, which increases our heart rate, 
it dilates the bronchial passages, it restricts our blood vessels, and all of this is very quickly happening to increase oxygen in the lungs and to increase blood flow in our muscles because there's been a threat detected in our body. So this fight, flight, freeze, faint, we're gonna need some adrenaline to do whatever it is that our body needs to do to, at the very basic level, avoid the threat. So when the stress is in your body, the cortisol and the adrenaline is moving through your body, you might feel your mouth grow dry, you might get your palms that become sweaty. This is you experiencing your sympathetic nervous system at work. So while these hormones are being released with cortisol, the brain immediately scans and begins to scan for connection. And this concept of connection, this social piece was added in by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps Score. And we can talk about him and some of the critiques and challenges with him. But this idea that as cortisol is released, as adrenaline is moving through your body, as the amygdala is sending off the fire alarm that there's a threat detected, your brain also begins to look out for social supports to call for help or rely on during this threat. Now, this happens very, very quickly. It's not something that we think about. It's not something that we even process because remember, the logic and the reasoning happens in the prefrontal cortex, and that part of our brain is shut off as this is happening. So if our brain doesn't register that there's any help, we then immediately go into fight or flight, which is where we'll either try to flee or avoid, to avoid the situation, to avoid the threat, or fight back, push back in some capacity. So those are the first two responses, trauma responses, is fight or flight. If we feel trapped, which again happens almost simultaneously as we look to fight or flight, if we feel trapped or if we literally are trapped, for example, if you're in a classroom with a door that is closed and you can't get out of your desk or if you're being pinned down or whatever it may be, if we can't fight back or we can't flee, then the body moves into the next three responses. So then from there, the body shuts down in order to expend as little energy as possible. It doesn't, it wants to conserve energy. So it will freeze, it will collapse, it will faint. It might also begin the fawning process, F-A-W-N, which is when we comply, flatter, appease, avoid conflict by any means, by merging with the wishes of those around us, the needs and the demands of others to avoid the threat. So on a very basic level, the amygdala is scanning for threat, it detects it. It sends a signal to the sympathetic nervous system. Adrenaline, cortisol is released. Blood starts pumping, start breathing more, your palms might be sweaty. At the exact same time, our brain starts scanning. Is there anyone around to help me? Is there anyone safe that might be able to help me with this? Instantly, if the answer is no, which often it is, then it goes into fight or flight. I'm gonna run in whatever that looks like, or I'm going to fight back. If we literally cannot do either of those two things in less than a quarter of a second, it moves to freeze, faint, or fawn, okay? So that's kind of the, the, the process. And again, it happens so quickly. And in the classroom, if you've ever been near or experienced or witnessed or have lived a trauma response or a stress response yourself, it happens so fast that's, that you don't really have time to think about what's going on. And again, the brain's not really registering what's going on. So all of this together essentially means, as we've talked about, that we have flipped our lid because a threat has been perceived. Now, the threat, the initial thing that sends off this chain of 
reactions in the body could be a noise, could be a memory stored in the hippocampus, could be a teacher shaming us in class, could be a microaggression, which is not so micro, from an adult in the space that we're sharing. And again, when this happens, the prefrontal cortex shuts off. The blood flow moves to different parts of the body. It doesn't go to the top of our brain. And uh, there's there's really no ability to logic, think clearly, make decisions, be intentional at that time. And so this is why a lot of the trauma-informed literature talks about regulating before we try to rationalize or talk to children. Um, and as an aside, I wish that the literature would also talk about more ways that adults can cause those threats, the, the threats, the perceptions of threats to be set off in school settings, too, because I think that's something we're not really looking at enough and um, is, is really important. So for me, after serving as a classroom teacher in a lot of elementary school grades, you can imagine that I have many examples of what this kind of chain reaction might look like. Um, but one that I often use to describe this response, this stress response, is not when I was a classroom teacher, but when I was working as a site training specialist and testing coordinator at an elementary school. Um, so for context, the classroom where I was working, my classroom was a room where students would come to take standardized tests when they were absent or they needed extra time. That was just one element of that space. One of many things It's kind of a catch-all room. And so one day I had a student and I'm just going to call her Micah and which is not her real name just for confidentiality. So Micah gets sent to my room to take a state test. She had been absent one day and she needed to make up the test. So I know Micah's family. I, I knew of her. I knew her younger brother. Her younger brother was in my class uh, the year before and I just knew that there was a lot going on. There were a lot of environmental factors outside of the school setting. I also knew that she was a young black female in the K-12 or in the K-6 building um, that had a lot of struggles with her white female teachers for a variety of reasons. A lot of savior mentality issues, a lot of power struggles that the teachers were often engaged in. So there, there was a lot going on. Okay. So we'd met a few times. I, as I said, I had her brother and, but she didn't really know me that well. We definitely didn't have a real connection. So from the moment that she walked in to take the test that morning, it was so obvious, it was very, very clear that her brain was scanning for threat, like literally. She was literally scanning. So she walked into the room, she walked into the space, and within less than a second, she was looking everywhere, scanning the entire room. And I like to use this as an example of what is happening in the brain because it's so visible and it's so visual. Oftentimes our students, you don't catch it. You don't see them literally scanning, um, but know that that's what they're doing is they're taking in their surroundings and they're seeing, am I safe? Is there a threat here? Is there a threat in this space? Is there a perceived threat for me? Am I safe? So she's in a room with only a few other kids from other classes, not from her own class. She's also being asked to take a state test, which is really stressful. I was on the computer, I had laptops out on the desk. So as she sat down at the computer, I walked up behind her uh, to start getting her ready to log her in for the test. And I just you know, walked up right behind her, but I was out of her line of vision. And so as soon as I was behind her and I said, hey, I'm gonna help you log in with the test, she jumped 
out of her seat. I mean, like actually flew out of her seat. And I, you know, she got scared. She just got a little frightened that I was behind her and she didn't know I was coming. When she turned her body around, she actually put her hands up like over her face, like as if she was on guard. And I just said like, oh, hey, so sorry. Did not mean to, you know, scare you like that. I, I could have announced my presence or something like that. But, you know, I'm just here. I, I, I promise I'm just here to help you log in to the test. And so she sits back down, she's kind of frazzled as I'm giving her directions and she's typing, her hands are shaking. I can hear her breathing a little bit more readily. Like she's she's breathing harder. And it's likely that as the threat was perceived as she walked in the room and thought, this is not a safe space. I haven't been in here. I don't really know this person. And then when I walked up behind her and I hadn't given her a cue or a direction or something like that, then she jumped up. And as cortisol and adrenaline were flooding her body, she was ready to fight. So not literally flight, fight, but that was her mode. That's what she went into. That was her state of dysregulation. So, but the power dynamic too was that the school wouldn't allow her to flee. So she came ready to fight if she needed to fight in the sense of like pushback in whatever way that made sense. In the sense, it was putting up her hand. So I showed her how to log in. She starts testing, but I am not exaggerating. So I just, I sat at the front of the room. I would walk around, I would circle. I would make sure that um, students were on task and that their eyes were on their own computer, et cetera. And I am not exaggerating when I say I'm not kidding, maybe two to three times every few minutes, she would whip her head back and just stare at the back door and then turn it back around. And then she'd type a few more words and then she'd t turn her head back to stare at the door and then she'd type a few more words and then she'd turn her head back. I mean, it was back and forth. It was like giving me a headache watching. It, it was so fascinating and I'm not exaggerating. And I probably wouldn't have noticed this if she were in my classroom of 33 kids, but with only a few students in this space and it was silent because we were testing, I, I was able to observe and to watch that she was literally scanning, just like her brain. She was looking at the door, scanning to see if there would be a threat. She was watching the door to see maybe if someone might walk in to stay on guard. And honestly, it just makes sense because in the brain to her, it was unsafe. It was a new space. She needed to keep her guard up. So I share this example because it's very clear that when she went into kind of that initial fight reaction, when I walked up, right, maybe a combo of fight and flee, she tried to stand up out of the chair to move from the space to remove the threat. And then she put her hands up, not to fight, but kind of to shield and cover her face. And so because the scanning was so apparent, it made me kind of pause and wonder, you know, like what might these stress responses and what might these behaviors look like to someone who doesn't understand a trauma response? Like, do, would it be that Micah, this student, was being disrespectful by not putting her eyes on the computer? Would it be that she was being defiant for the rules of keeping her eyes on her screen? Would she have been punished or disciplined? Is there a chance that educators teachers who didn't see the trauma response, the stress response come out, would have done something more punitive in response to the behaviors and the actions that they saw in Micah. I also wondered, what is my role as a classroom teacher, as the teacher in this space, to help regulate student nervous systems? Am I part of causing her body stress? And the, the answer was yes. I walked up behind her. I had her sit down right away. I didn't take an extra minute to connect. I didn't offer her an opportunity to walk around the room, to ask questions about the space. There are 
lots of things now that I know that I would have done so differently had I had I had an opportunity or honestly had I just known this then about trauma and about what is happening in the body. So let's talk about regulation. And as you continue this work and as you read and in your supplementary text, you're reading about the idea of regulation. So I want to just define a couple of key terms as they relate to this topic. So being regulated is, in essence, a state, being in a state of calm. This is the body's ability to experience, maintain stress within what's called a window of tolerance. We are focused and we are relaxed when we are regulated. And when we're regulated, we're working in our neocortex and our prefrontal cortex. We are thinking logically, we're thinking sequentially. This is where kind of the traditional learning and academics and discipline and all those systems that we know in education are able to function because the brain is alert and regulated and engaged. So with this, there is regulation. And then sometimes there are things that we need to do with our brain to help us get back to being regulated. So with that, there are two terms, and one is called self-regulation, and the other is called emotion regulation. Now, the processes of self-regulation are closely connected to emotion regulation, but they're not the same. And often in the trauma-informed world, I hear people say, regulate, 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 and I always implore them to define what they mean by that. Most of the time, they're using the phrase self, the word regulate to mean self-regulation. I study emotion regulation, and so it's important that we kind of know the distinctions. So self-regulation is a mechanism that's housed at the top of the brainstem, which is where a person can alter their brain state and adapt to those responses, where you are literally able to adapt the behavior, thoughts, impulses, appetites, and task performance. So some strategies for people who want to learn a little bit more, Stuart Shanker's really big on self-reg, he's a doctor, is things like being in nature, using a fidget, doing some yoga poses, cycling on a bike, doing breathing exercises, listening to music, singing. Those are some self-regulation strategies. Now, emotion regulation is broadly defined as individuals that are influencing which emotions they have, when they have them, and how they experience them. James Gross is the leading researcher on emotion regulation. So with emotion regulation, we are working through all the big feelings when we have them, what they are, and how we experience and express them. So some ideas for strategies for emotion regulation would be getting enough sleep, drinking water, which is a really big one, um, acknowledging feelings as they come up, talking with others, writing a journal, exercising, paying attention to thoughts that occur before and after the feelings, naming feelings as they pass. Emotion reg is really about feelings. Self-regulation is more that kind of almost like self-control, but a little more in-depth and a little more involved. There's also co-regulating, and this is something that's used a lot in therapy and kind of clinical settings, which is when a person is able to replicate the developmental strategies to help a student regulate. So when a student needs to regulate, you can co-regulate with them by you engaging in the regulatory strategy or activity with them, and that kind of helps model and show them, and it's a connective process that allows them to regulate a little more readily.
All right, so I've given you a lot of words, a lot of phrases. I would like to come back to this idea of regulation though, because I think that it's really important. And even as I'm talking out loud and I'm thinking about this process, there's so much to it and there's so much involved in the classroom experience that I think I'm gonna add another episode just to just talk about that. So all day we move through states of regulated and dysregulated, D-Y-S, dysregulated. It's all one word. And the definition of being dysregulated is this concept of when we are not calm, essentially. When we experience stress or trauma outside of our window of tolerance, it's basically what we would consider being, quote, stressed out. And when we are dysregulated, we're not thinking. Again, it's another phrase for it that we can use all the time is we flipped our lid. So when we flipped our lid, the scientific term for flipping our lid is being dysregulated. When you are dysregulated and when you have flipped your lid, the brain can only process 15 seconds at a time. So the next 15 seconds are the only thing that they can take in, all the stimuli in 15 second chunks. Protection overrides logic. Again, that perception of threat, needing to feel and be safe becomes the number one thing. And the science has told us that the listening center of the brain actually turns off and that the brain at the time of dysregulation can usually only take in about five words at a time. So this is important for us when we're dealing with students who are working through dysregulation because if we give them lots and lots of tasks and ask them to do things and we're talking at them and they're not responding, often for teachers, or I'll speak for myself, for me, I would get super frustrated. Like, you're, this person is being deliberately defiant and they're ignoring me and this is so rude. Or they start crying or they start laughing, which is often a dysregulation experience of something that can happen in the body. And that's really, really hard to keep in check. So with dysregulation, there are two types of dysregulation, and I'm going to end it here as I give two examples of students that I have known and worked with, because again, I think it's important for us to keep this in mind. So there is a hyper-aroused state of dysregulation, and this is a person who the body cannot focus, can't sit still, they're aggressive, they're resistant, they're argumentative, they're anxious, they're impulsive. So an example, I've had a lot of students who are consistently hyper-aroused. In the elementary grades, this seems to emerge a lot, but also in secondary students who really struggle with this as well. I've seen it across the board. So for example, we'll give him the name Jay. He was a student in my class. His hyper-arousal often looked like having difficulty getting started on classroom tasks, um, which was often like those do nows that they engaged in right when they entered the classroom. When he was finally in his seat, he could not stop fidgeting and tapping his pencil and tapping his hands and digging in his desk. He'd leave his seat to walk anywhere. He'd get up to get a pencil. Then he'd get up to sharpen the pencil. Then he'd get up to get a different pencil. Then he'd go check his backpack. Then he'd get a drink of water. He'd walk to his friend's desk. And when he was redirected, he would regularly express that he was confused or he forgot what he was doing. He didn't know what he was supposed to do. Jay needed a lot of reminders of the expectations and the directions for an activity or an assignment. He also called out a lot. He would ask a lot of questions out of turn. He would ask and kind of call things out and speak during silent work time. He would always get up to ask me questions when I was modeling something on the document camera. And the other thing that was interesting about Jay is that he was always eating. He had a snack in his hand, in his pocket, somewhere around him 
all day long. He's like a little energizer bunny, just was buzzing all the time. He never slowed down. At recess, he was sprinting while he played football. He got angry really easy. He was argumentative, especially at recess if the football plays weren't working in his favor. And of course, he was always the last kid to come to class. So I'll talk about regulation strategies for Jay in the next episode, and we can talk and unpack a little bit more. But there's a second type of dysregulation that's actually more problematic than the Jays of the world. And this is called hypo arousal. And this is the students that are withdrawn, tardy, absent, shut down, avoid tasks, or they're perceived as not caring or forgetful. This is actually the most dangerous state to be in because hypo arousal takes the longest to emerge from. So when I taught sixth grade, I had a student, we'll just call him Adrian, who was all of those things combined when it comes to hypo arousal. He'd come into class with a sweatshirt hood on immediately before he even hung up his backpack or got his binder out, his head was on his desk. He would doze off sometimes during whole group instruction. And that was back when I had to sign a lot of homework. And so he never had it, like literally never had it. And he had a reason, like he forgot. He left it at home. He didn't know it was due. He didn't hear me assign it, even though it was the same task every day. He rarely engaged in group work. He often sat silently. He would nod off a lot, doodle on his paper. Once his mom even suggested, I was in partnership with his family, and they suggested that I have him stand in the back of the room because sitting seemed to put him to sleep or kind of cause him to daydream, zone out. But even that didn't really help. So when I worked with him independently, he often um, shut down. He wouldn't respond to prompts or questions. So very withdrawn, avoided tasks, um, slept a lot, just really kind of lethargic on the whole, um, which is an example of being hypo aroused. So I'm going to leave it at that. We've talked about the trauma-affected brain regulation, self-regulation, emotion regulation. We've also talked about the two states of dysregulation, hypo and hyper arousal. And I think in the next episode, I'm going to really unpack what it means to regulate and some strategies that we can use in our classrooms um, that can help our students. So tune in next time and thanks for listening.